when when you can have more of a purpose and you can actually try to see look around you see how the world is uh slowly but surely coming apart today and where more and more people have to wake up and and everyone has to wake up and see that and try to pull it together again we are becoming so many people on this planet and we all need to transcend the Maslow's hierarchy of needs and and look at mother earth and we need to look at um, the, our brothers and sisters and everyone around ourselves and we have to actually uh, be uh, more uh, be selfless Once upon a time, there were tens of thousands of makers struggling. Every day they built for hours and hours, but didn't ship and didn't earn enough income. One day, the No Code Wealth podcast and newsletter came to help them find the way. Because of this, makers became founders and earned the money they deserve. Because of this, founders can have growth, freedom, and wealth until tomorrow. No Code becomes the next big skill that changes the future of humanity. That's what I'm all about. Hello, my name is Abdulaziz and from an ethical hacker to a European Ivy League business graduate to a hypnotherapist to a growth marketer, I've lost everything twice and now I'm rebuilding my life one more time, 1% a day. The No Code Wealth podcast and newsletter are for the makers and founders who have the proactivity, perspective and persistence to go on this journey with me and get the answers about money, marketing, and mindset so that makers become earners, earners become founders, and founders get freedom and create wealth. And thank you all so much for the support. This podcast now is ranking very nicely on Apple in the entrepreneurship category. Top 200 in San Francisco, top 60 in Germany, top 50 in the UK, top 30 in Sweden, top 25 in Italy and top 25 in India. So please keep rating, reviewing, subscribing and sharing. My guest today is Arne Peder Blix. He is the principal at Aka Invest and the CEO of Northern Light Sensors in Oslo, Norway. He has over 18 years of experience as a CEO within technology companies. He is a very tech-savvy, commercially-driven person with a flair for sales strategy and he is the father of three beautiful kids he loves skiing sailing flying golfing and the outdoors what is important to him is the earth his earth positive and privacy which is a very very important topic arne how are you today thank you abdullah this uh, i'm great thank you for having me on on your show i'm very thrilled. So uh, I'm great. Feeling very um, eager to go through this voyage with you. I am excited and this is going to be so much fun. So I'm ready to play. And I want to begin with a question that gives some context because I imagine you're like one of those superheroes like Batman <laughs> or Spider-Man. And in every movie, they begin with their backstory, like Spider-Man, his uncle getting shot because he decided to not stop the bank robbery and therefore with a, with a, a great power comes great responsibility or Batman, his parents getting shot in an alley and everything. So you as a superhero today, 
what is the story that made you the RNA we now know and love? <laughs> well, well, thank you. And uh, since you start with the superhero stuff, I will at least uh, do my best to um, spice up with the, some reality. Uh, I am an ex-Navy officer uh, from the Royal Norwegian Naval Academy, and I have actually lived inside of a machine more than 1,000 days, uh, i.e. a submarine. So I am an ex-submariner. So that should be uh, a start for you. And um, somehow I have transcended through many steps, combining the lessons learned from a submarine, uh, because when you drive a submarine, it is uh, a, a mix of all types of technology and uh, pushing people and talents to the maximum. And there's a binary risk in what we do as a team. So, uh, I okay, binary the... risk. Just to make sure this is beautiful, and please continue. But you said binary risk, it means you either live or die. It's like extreme risk reward. You either survive and thrive and arrive yes. to your destination, or you That's go bye bye. And how do you view the world? I mean, because of those uh, lessons you learned uh, on the submar mar uh, submarine. What happened exactly in the way that you view life? Do you see things in a way, a systematic way, where you're always thinking, okay, I have these elements, I have these people, they have to work together like that submarine, and of course it's slow to move, but to be able to make it move, I have to be strategic and begin one or five or ten years earlier moving the trajectory and just share more because... How did that impact your life? There is value there. That, that is true. Well, it, 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 it uh, requires you to play chess and you have to think ahead. Uh, so you have to continuously swim between the current, the near future and the far future. So it's almost like playing trombone. You zoom in, you zoom out. You zoom in, you zoom out. And you look around, you look around. So you have to be very attentive. And, and uh, there's a lot of stress, can be, and there can be a lot of fatigue. So you always have to uh, try to analyze where you are uh, when you make decisions. And then I mean where, where you and your team are mentally. Uh, are you in balance uh, when you make decisions or are you unbalanced? And, and if you are unbalanced, blood pressure, stress, fatigue, whatever, uh, you have to try to compensate for that. You're alone. You have to make these decisions as a team. You can't, there's, there's uh, yeah, there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of parallels to business in, in this, particularly in technology companies. I love this and I have to ask a few things. You said it's like a trombone where you zoom in and zoom out. In a lot of business literature, they will say that is either strategic thinking or tactical thinking, and that it's very rare the individual that combines both. So was it something you were born with or how, whether as a strategic thinker, did you develop the tactical side or as a tactical thinker, did you develop the strategic side? And you said there is a lot of requirement for you to be focused and to be present and everything. Do you meditate or is it like the sports and skiing is your way of being and cultivating that present and focus and noticing all the details in the moment? Exactly. Well, I, I had a bit of a special background when I grew up. I had a lot of uh, responsibility unusual for early age because my father was very sick and uh, he, he faded away. So, so I guess I've always... Um, 
been a, a bit of a thinker and a bit of a uh, person not afraid of taking responsibility. It's been a natural thing. How do you develop your ability to be focused and notice all the details, which you mentioned is very important? And is it really through sailing and skiing and those sports that force you to be present that maybe it's a way of developing that? Yes, yes, absolutely. It's it's sort of a meditation flow that you get when your mind is in the moment. So when you when you go fast uh, downward skiing, or when you're flying, or when you're a lot of the sports that I do, uh, you're not thinking one moment at you're not at work. You're just in the moment, and that's when the mind rests. So it's a sort of a meditation. But I also uh, had to develop a technique uh, while I was driving submarines because you need to sometimes these are weeks and weeks and weeks and you have to quickly fall asleep and then get some super quality sleep and then quickly be back uh, on the job and doing this switch on switch off is very hard so my, my trick there is a, a certain type of music Really? Can you share more? And is this what some scientists will call polyphasic sleeping, where you sleep for like 30 minutes and then you're awake for three hours and then you sleep for 20 minutes and are awake for three hours or so, and therefore you don't need to stay sleeping all the time, but your brain will compensate by giving you short bursts of REM sleep, if that's what you're speaking about. And what? how did you develop and cultivate this Pavlovian response to music, that, which kind as well? <laughs> yes, you're absolutely right, and uh, and I'm 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 thankful there are some um, more um, scientific uh, classifications of this behavior, which came to me naturally, uh, desperately when I needed it. Uh, since I was a kid, I've always uh, enjoyed piano music, uh, complex piano music. Uh, my sisters played, I played a bit. Um, so in the hour of need, when the first desperation came and I just had to learn myself how to um, get these rim bursts, um, a certain type of piano uh, music came to me. And it has been with me ever since. And I've explored uh, other versions and other um, <laughs> departments of music that uh, can be utilized for the same Pavlovian response. So very correct. This is beautiful. You said it came to you. So now I need to ask, are you more of an analytical decision makers who shuts down emotions and tries to make decisions based on numbers? Or it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you trust your instincts. You seem to have very, very well honed instincts and you believe your body is a machine evolved over millions of years to be a high-performing machine, and therefore you have self-trust, you follow your gut, and some of the decisions you made in life were 100%, they came to you that, yes, this should be it, rather than the result of a lot of like business planning and Excel sheets. That's a lovely question, and, and I'm very happy to be able to give you an answer. <laughs> um, I, I'm 50 years now. Um, when When I grew up, I was uh, in in the category of intuitive and uh, and have, having trust in myself. Uh, and then, of course, I grew up. I learned a lot. I was seeking analytical 
uh, uh, answers and, and, uh, and methods and etc. And I've been through the whole doubting phase. And, and um, well, the good thing is in Navy and, and in a lot of the experiences that I've had in life, uh, I've learned to trust myself, but I've also learned to doubt myself. And I find, luckily, that I'm returning back in, in, in later years to trust my instincts more and more. And I guess today I'm uh, a, a combination of both, uh, both the analytical skills and all of the experience, but also trusting the instincts more and more. So the only, the only risk that one should be aware of, and which I'm very afraid of, is to trust my instincts blindly. Because what if you're wrong? So, so um, you know, it, 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 you don't want to become arrogant. So it's this constant battle and challenge with your own attitude uh, to be confident enough to make decisions, but not to become overconfident. You have to be humble. Thank you. And I want to understand what in your brain or what is the thing that gives you this somewhat of a paradoxical ability to both trust yourself and doubt yourself? And I focus more on trusting yourself because you said arrogance is of course a negative but for most people they live with a level of imposter syndrome they cannot even trust themselves so what in your thoughts in your perspective allows you to trust yourself that maybe other people can use to also have more confidence i guess empiric uh, over time i have seen again and again that um my my um, more in instinct and gut and, and um, uh, less analytical uh, decision or 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 choice uh, has turned out to be the right one, and then you sort of go loops around yourself to to challenge and verify. This is very much like Daniel Kahneman uh, with the thinking fast and thinking slow. The two systems of the fast brain and the slow brain and uh, i think um, for myself i'm learning more and more to let go and be more aware of of the powers that i seem to have and trust them but uh, it's it's something i don't do lightly because uh, i guess that would make me uh, prone to become overconfident thank you which is a wonderful problem to have compared to most people so i would like to explore that a bit more you know, like we know the difference between a dream and reality and some fantasy, imagination, daydreaming, because they look and feel different. And to you, when do you know that a message from your gut or from your instincts is really that kind of message you should listen to compared to not that message? So maybe it feels stronger, it touches your heart, maybe it feels in your body or something that maybe other people can learn so that they think, oh, when I feel this too, that's something I should explore more. And when I don't feel that, it's probably more wrong and I should think more analytically instead. Yes. Um, for me, uh, and I believe this probably counts for uh, most people. I'm not going to say it counts for all people, but um, uh, it, it's not. Uh, the, the, the voice inside of you, it doesn't scream or shout. It's, it's a low voice, and it's not necessarily a voice, but you can't hear it, and you can't feel your uh, gut feeling uh, if there's too much noise around you. Uh, this is back to what I said about being on a submarine under pressure with fatigue and not being in balance. Uh, so to be 
balanced when you make decisions is important and try to retain your balance at all times. Uh, this means in your private life and all of your spinning thoughts, your anxiousness and whatever, because and, and if you have too much noise, uh, you can't you can't hear your own thoughts and what you really what your gut feeling is telling you. So for me, this is uh, nature being outside. Norway is Norway and growing up in Norway has been, you know, we are outdoor people. So I've lived around the world in many, many countries uh, far, far away. And uh, I've always been seeking to go outdoor and find peace and calm. And, and that's at least for me where, where I can hear uh, that intuitive voice speaking loudest. I love that. You're speaking about what in systems theory, what I would call structural imbalance, that if a part of the system is weaker, it will become uh, or as in theory of constraint, it will become the bottleneck that reduces the whole effectiveness of the system. So I have to ask you, there are two kinds of people maybe in the world, uh, the kind who is more tends to be more American, where they say sleep less, work longer. Why should you sleep more? Four hours of sleep is beautiful. No rest. Rest when you're a billionaire or something. <laughs> well, there is another school like Eugene Schwartz, who is famous in marketing, he has in one of his talks, he said when he grew up in a place where people used to use horses, mm -hmm. when there was a thief and they needed to chase that thief, he noticed that they will take breaks and stop and let the horses rest and eat and relax before you, they continue, although they're chasing a dangerous thief and there is urgency, but because they knew if they didn't let the horses rest, they will die and therefore everything will be lost. And he thought to himself, well, I should also do that. So he began actually with a Pomodoro technique before it was invented. Well, he worked 33 minutes and then he took 10 minutes break and then 33 minutes, 10 minutes break. And he made sure to enjoy himself and have a restful moment every day. Well, other people, they say, oh, if you're not tired and exhausted as a businessman, you will not succeed. What is your comment on this? And how do you balance? Like, do you have a specific number of hours in the day you say, after I work this number of hours, I'm done? Or do you have specific days where you say, I protect these days, these are for the outdoors? Or how do you approach that? Well, I think you're absolutely right that there are two ways of going at it. I, I grew up with uh, partly part of my family in Norway and part of my family in the, in America, and I've I've sort of seen both and grew grown up with both uh, strategies and both mentalities. For me, I do a hybrid. I am a mix. I can just like on the submarine, we sprint and we drift. We sprint and we drift. And um, the trick is to always. Uh, know when to um, slow down so that you don't burn out. Because if you burn out uh, in the short or the long run, uh, the way back is so much more demanding. It takes so much longer time. Uh, in, in your analogy with, uh, with the, the thieves, same thing. So, so for me, I, I do this intuitively now. And uh, I've been leading so many teams. Uh, I burn out myself almost uh, a couple of times, so so I know the signals. I know, and that's the benefit we have from from the Navy, I guess, from my training in so many years as a Navy officer. That you are used to look around you and look at the team, 
and see, I think you need to take a week off. You need a week's vacation right now. No discussion, just do it. And, and then you have to do that discipline with yourself as well. But I don't have any routine. I don't have a four days on, one day off or something like that. But in Norway, we have always respected the weekends quite well, I would say. And, and I, I do have uh, the best balance in life. I have three boys and uh, 11, 9, and 6. So they, they always want to go outdoor. Even today when it's sleet and snow and windy and, uh, you know, it's not a wonderful weather in Norway on the 21st of January, but uh, they still want to be outside. So I get my duels with them and I get the weekends off. And, uh, and then I... Uh, Sometimes push 15, 16 hour days, but not so many, not so, but only if it's flow, if you have flow, you can do it, but then you also have to pay back and take a couple of days off. So balance, balance, balance would be my reply. I love that. It's like the scrum sprints where to do a product, you will sprint to finish it, but then you return to a lower level or maybe even in Kanban, although I don't know whether it's totally related or not, where you have to reduce the work in progress so that if you overwhelm yourself or a system, you will reduce the whole effectiveness. And by trying to do more, you end up with a lot, lot less and a lot more mistakes made and a lot more imperfections and error. And to ask you a bit more deeply about this, well, you lead teams. And you deal with people and humans all the way. Gary V says that the more he people he manages, the more he becomes a babysitter, managing people's emotions and egos rather than anything more to ensure that they do their work. Or are you? Do you feel a bit like that? Or are you one of uh, the people who follows more the good to great model where? You look for the right people who believe in the mission so much, even if you had two people, one who is strong in a skill, but the other one not as much, but he is the right person. You choose that and understand the right person will can learn the skill, but if you get the skill from the wrong person, it's the wrong choice. What is your opinion? Or do you get the wrong people, but you become a babysitter and a politics manager and you can make it work like Gary Vee? <laughs> uh, micromanagement is not for me, and uh, I, I always look for the right attitude. Uh, you can train for skills, and uh, it's about the balance of teams. And and, and um, right now, I'm leading a project where we are building something extremely complex, which requires us to push the physics in all directions, but also what is yeah, what whatever technology can do in so many different fields at the same time. So it's all about balance. And then if then you have someone on your team who needs babysitting or someone on your team who is too strong and too loud, takes too much room, uh, the product will suffer because uh, the discussions about um, harmony and the balanced product will, will be mirrored by the balance or unbalance of your team. So um, I, I, I choose more the mentor role. Um, I have a, a, a lot of um, experience in my life, a lot of suffering, but not, not that I self-pity. It's something I have been able to turn around as a strength so I can offer experience to others and guide them to have them get 
the best performance out of their careers and out, out and you know it's important to for them to to um, choose their own path i can only walk it with them i'm not walking it for them i love that so in a way because you have character you don't try to take over people's lives but you work more as a facilitator and a coach to allow people to grow through the challenges that you present them with and you can give them advice that uh, illuminates their blind spots that they do not see and that is the best use you can and when they're blind spots are illuminated or the unknown that you see you share with them they can grow and make their decisions and become their own person which brings me back to your three children what is the way that you raise them that allows you to impart and share your experience from whether the navy and the submarine world or the business world or even now mentoring those teams that you use to make them the person that they can thrive in this world and what is your vision for your children are you more someone who says i want them to be a copy of myself or you allow them to be who they are but just totally supported so then they stand on the shoulder of the previous generation thank you i well i i i, I can't answer that without explaining a bit about my own growing up and and my my father was uh, an engineer a lot of mathematics and uh, uh, but not not very strong and then he, he he got sick he got multiple sclerosis and started to fade away well my mother was more of a libertarian um uh, true hippie 67 68 type generation i'm born in 1970 so it was more of a free upbringing uh, within a fairly secure uh, environment so I, I believe um i i was never told to do this, that, or the other. It was, of course, expected that uh, since you have gifts in this, that, and field, that you should try to do something with them. But I, I don't have big ambitions on behalf of my kids. I wish them the very best, and I wish them well. I wish them a good that they work with something rewarding for them, and that they have fun in their life. They find someone they love, and you know, all the normal things. But I don't have big ambitions on their behalf. I don't want to pressure them. I want to lift them up. And, and the way I believe to do that is to help them find their own way. And, and that means that present them with, with some learning opportunities, but uh, catch them before uh, they really fall. But you can't learn to fly or drive a submarine or etc. unless you almost fail, almost crash. Almost, and the instructor will, will stop you just before uh, the disaster happens. But then you can then then you have a learning experience. You can see ah you see if I hadn't helped you here you would have crashed. Uh, you have to have them learn from have, make some small mistakes, and you can't live life for them. So I see parenting as producers. We are producers of a film, uh, and the film is filled with the learning experiences, good fundament, uh, uh, hopefully a lot of fun and good experiences, but. But all in all, within a fairly safe environment until they are uh, old enough to start um, producing their own movie. I love that. And I had actually a different question, but I have to ask about movies. Are you a huge movie fan? Is there a period or a kind of movie that you loved? Is there a time in your life where you even wished and hoped to be involved with movie production? Or is this just purely a metaphor? 
<laughs> no, I, I actually, one of the companies that I have been co-founding and uh, being, being chairman of is called DryLab. And uh, DryLab.io, that's a little commercial for you. Um, it's a um, uh, co-working metadata capture platform that uh, is the director's tool and anyone else who are a cinematographer, producer, uh, etc. on set to help them uh, create better stories. And, uh, so yeah, so I, I'm not going <laughs> to dive too much into dry love, but yes, I love films. And I, I love also watching um, real acting the way it was uh, in the old days. I, f I find today there are not as many who are real actors. There's a lot of um, uh, actors who have been casted in roles where they are just being themselves. And uh, sometimes they are being themselves over and over again. Whereas uh, the art of acting, you have actors who can become someone else who are, and that's what I would refer to as more acting. I might be offending some people now, but uh, in my view, at least, uh, that was more of a uh, older discipline where, where uh, and, and I have the most utmost admiration of people who can speak on script while they are um, doing long cuts, long takes. Uh, it must have taken an enormous skill to do that. So yeah, I, I love films and I love the half dreaming, half reality. And uh, I have a special, uh, of course, being a technologist, I have a special uh, flair for uh, films that are talking about the future. Uh, I can enjoy a bit of Star Trek and a, a lot, a lot more maybe of Star Wars, but uh, uh, I would also enjoy Blade Runner, for example, as one of the absolute bests. And, and when Blade Runner Two came out, you know, uh, we were all, I think, apprehensive: how is it possible to do this again? And then it turned out to be marvelous. So you know, that type of films and all of the philosophy of the future which I think is imperative for any technologist to, uh, to have a pretty good overview of because uh, those dreams are what we are manifesting into reality, at least some of them and quite a few of them within the real laws of physics and what's possible. But uh, um, I think the futurists, the novelists, I also read a lot of that stuff. I've also had done that since I was a kid. And um, it's almost like some some of them are predicting the future and then uh, we technologists are trying to manifest. I love that and I have to ask a few things. One, do you have a great tendency for empathy where when you lead in your team, you, in some way it relates to acting, where you become them to understand the world from their view so that you know how to communicate and how to help them avoid mistakes and maybe even when you do your customer research and avatar, you have this ability to put yourself in their shoes. And therefore, in some ways, you view yourself as an actor to learn about them and therefore service them better. And are you a dreamer? Were you always a person daydreaming about the future? And therefore, this relates to your fascination with movies and novels about the future and uh, science fiction and the future technology? I, I would say when it comes to my employees, uh, yes, definitely leading with empathy uh, and projection, being able to uh, relate and put myself in their shoes and understand their situation. 
because again, having been given the opportunity of a very, very rich life and a very rich uh, point cloud of experience uh, up until now so that I can uh, at least guide them with um, <laughs> that's normal and don't worry and uh, uh, most things over time will pass even though they feel terrible at the moment. Uh, and, and I can talk about these things with experience and, and hopefully give them some reflection and uh, being a sparring partner. And, and that's what people need to be seen and heard. Uh, so, but again, on, on more on the mentor role and as a, as a, you know, a friend in many ways. So I love that. And since you love movies, who is your favorite mentor character? I mean, I imagine someone like Yoda or something. And in some ways, when you are in that mentor role, you're almost being one of those older, uh, not, I'm not talking specifically about Yoda, but there must be some wise mentor in one of the books or movies that you love that inspired you to value this role. Is this correct? <laughs> Uh, now you're using your uh, intuitive skills. Yes, um, I will combine my answer. You asked about uh, whether I was daydreaming. No, it's a more deeper, uh, there's more depth in me than that. So it's not totally unrealistic. It's more philosophy uh, towards um, life. And uh, yeah, for example, do androids dream of electric sheep? And um, what's the in the, the book of Philip K. Dick behind um, uh, Blade Runner? But it's also uh, admiring and trying to project into the situation of people who have had enormous responsibilities and had very little information and still had to make decisions. Uh, so I read a lot of biographies of uh, people who have been in those been in, in extreme situations, be it in war, like Winston Churchill, which is possibly uh, one of the people I admire the most uh, for, for so many things. You can just uh, watch the film The Darkest Hour and you will understand at least some of it. I've been studying and watching him for many, many years because I think uh, he lived an extraordinary life. But there are, there are so many others. Uh, try to read and understand the mindset of Steve Jobs for good and for his challenges and understand the complexity of the person. Uh, he was maybe difficult to work with and uh, you can question motives. And, you know, he was not an easy person. He was a difficult person in many ways. But uh, I think it's important to study these people. And the reason I do it is I want to avoid making unnecessary mistakes. And the only way to do that is to learn from others. Uh, there are two types of people in life, I believe. There are those who have to. Oh, it's about trust. If you can trust, if you know what trust is, and you understand the language of trust, then you can learn from others, and you don't have to taste the same bitter experience that they have. So, if by then studying other people's lives, those who have lived hard or difficult, or lived well or lived different. Uh, then I believe uh, that part of that can become part of your passive learning and your passive uh, reservoir of experience that you can draw from so that when you 
end up in new situations, uh, at least you have that as your ballast so that you don't necessarily repeat mistakes that other people have done before you. One second. I'm hearing, though, something that please comment on it because it seems like an oxymoron or a contradiction. Before you said you mentor people to almost make mistakes, almost like fail, and then just before they fail, you save them so that they learn. And now you're saying that for yourself, you go through a process of passive learning where you don't even make the mistakes. You believe that the value is in already having the answers so you don't make the mistakes, which is the opposite strategy. And even in early beginning, you said that there is a binary uh, thing to all the, the, the things that you did when you were in the submarine, all the decisions is that you either lived or you died. So I'm asking whether for yourself, you put yourself under too much stress of not failing, and therefore you try to not even be put in such situations where there is a risk of making a mistake and avoiding it. But when you uh, mentor other people, you use a different strategy of encouraging and producing the movie where they can almost crash, but just a second before it, you save them so they learn their lesson and why don't you approach a life from that place of more almost crashing and then getting that real experience that gives a depth of wisdom that it will be always superior to applying the wisdom that someone else happened to learn by surviving a hard time. I'm just asking because it seems to me like two opposite, totally perspectives, views, <laughs> and strategies. Uh, it's a combination. Again, a hybrid. Uh, very well put and a good analytic. Analysis of it. Yes, uh, it, it, these are different phases. Uh, when you're so, let me use the analogy of learning to fly. It's obvious. Uh, it's it's easier to understand than going into the submarine analogy, but it's the same principle. So, an instructor learning teaching people to fly, he needs to uh, do a mix of carrot and stick uh, to ingrain into people. Uh, immediate reactions in super dangerous situations where only seconds later you will die or not. Uh, and this can be uh, for very young kids to put your hand on the stove. You do it once and you burn yourself and then you learn don't do that. Um, so within, you know, it depends on what sort of risk and what sort of consequences uh, there can be from making mistakes. So when a friend of mine crashed the submarine uh, uh, and there's a lot of reasons why it happened and it wasn't his fault obviously if everyone was going to learn not from him but from trying to do the same thing uh, without his input it would be a very expensive exercise for everyone so so all in all in its good time um, i i live and run uh, companies uh, the company I run today, it's a lot of risk, financial risk, technology risk. There's a lot of different risks, uh, which I won't touch upon here. But uh, so I live and breathe that every day. But uh, that, is the, that doesn't stop me from seeking uh, the mindset uh, of um, Churchill or other people having to still make decisions when you have incomplete information. To make tough decisions when you have all the information, that's quite easy. That's just analytics. 
when you have to make decisions, when you have insufficient information, then you're talking more about intuitive gut feeling, um, pattern recognition, and, and other things. So I would say it's a mix. Uh, sometimes the mentor and uh, the guide and the uh, learn from almost doing or even doing mistakes, making mistakes, if it can be done within a controlled environment. And then uh, the other way around, when you're talking real, real life and risks that can have enormous consequences, financial consequences, or, you know, uh, these days, if, if, if people run businesses the wrong way from a board perspective or from a CEO perspective, you can risk a lot of people's lives in the sense that they will lose their job, they will lose their income, they will have consequences for the mortgages, for bringing food to the table for their kids. Those things, you, you, you can't just let people make those mistakes fully. So you have to step in before it's too late and tell the CEO or tell the board, guys, if we don't act now, we will suffer. So yeah, it's <laughs> it's a short program, <laughs> but uh, I, I will always be um, analyzing as much uh, and, and taking in as much information as I can from and try to learn from others. But yeah, I will certainly continue making my own mistakes and, and I will try to help other, other people's um for not doing so many expensive ones if i can thank you and please correct me if i'm wrong so of course i understood when it's a controlled environment it's very important to let people realize the gravity of the lessons by almost making those huge mistakes but it's safe because it's a controlled environment and there is a safety net and now i'm wondering why do you choose to operate in such an environment or a business uh, where the risks are absolutely huge? Is it because, like me, and maybe I am wrong, but the, when people say, oh, uh, no risk, no reward, I believe they don't understand the fact that actually by opening yourself to huge risk and being in a situation of extreme ability to lose a lot, you open yourself up as well to absolutely enormous upside. And that is why it's important to operate under such high stakes environment, because when the stakes are high, actually the rewards are much higher. But if you reduce the possibility to lose, you actually reduce the possibility to win big as well, and you're destined for mediocrity. But maybe that's a wrong perspective. To you, why do you operate in such high challenge, high stress, high stakes environments while you could theoretically just go in the woods, have a farm, stay with your children and relax and have no stress? Well, I'm sure farming in the woods is no walk in the park either from time to time, but uh, <laughs> I would love to do that. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe later in life. Well, um, it, it's many things. Yes, you learn much, much faster when you're uh, on the red rather, rather than when you're on the yellow or the green. Uh, in the analogy that when, when stakes are high, if it's war or if it's uh, heavy, whatever the uh, <laughs> equal would be in, in business. So, yeah, I, I, have, I seem to function well under pressure and I seem to function well under high stakes and, and that's also where I thrive because I, I learn the most and, and I can be useful and the, I think it's the other that's the other part is 
to be helpful and to be useful, to be uh, able to help others is possibly the greatest gift because then you are meaningful to them at least. You can contribute and uh, there is purpose. One second, please comment on this. Where in your life did it happen? Because the way the brain works, at least to my understanding and the science I've read is during childhood, there should have been some event, experience or story, or maybe it relates to your father's reduced health, that when you found that you became useful, you found meaning in that, and therefore the whole life became about the more you learn through challenging situations, the more you can be that person like you were when you were young to your family, that when times are tough, you can be the useful person who saves the day, and therefore it relates to the superhero in the very beginning. But I'm wondering about the real deeper reason for everything. Is it that when you had your family, you felt so much validation, meaning and gratitude and importance because you stepped up to take responsibility when it was much, much harder and high stake for someone your age. And therefore you saved the day for your family. And in many ways that created the pattern of learning more to become more useful. And therefore the pattern of the more I know, the more character, experience, knowledge I have, the more I can help others and be useful to them like I was to my family, which gives that same emotion that you had then of maybe pride, usefulness, gratitude, or just being happy because there was meaning. Yes, I think I've been seeking meaning <laughs> from a very early stage. And yes, there there is a lot of uh, grief and suffering uh, in the family in early years. Uh, and I also uh, gravitated naturally because my father was disabled towards um, working a lot with disabled during my teen years as a sailing instructor. And I ran a sailing school for, uh, for disabled people uh, before I started in the Navy. Uh, so yes, um, I've always felt that when you help people, um, of course, you have to be first in such a wonderful position that you can help, uh, maybe just because you're able and they are disabled, maybe just because you can sail and they can't, but also maybe because you have an experience from uh, many boards or you have had all kinds of these jobs or you have these particular skills, at least you are now in a position where you can help and then you choose to help. Now, the point is uh, from a mentor-mentee, mentor-adaptee, uh, adapt position, um, it's uh, so little energy input needed from the one who knows and the one who helps that gives so much uh, output on the other side for the one who is helped, who is being helped. So that transaction has a, a very nice output. It has a great yield. So, it, it, and therefore it's always fascinated me that for me, this is, you know, it's not a big deal to help and to spend half an hour or one hour or whatever, because I have the experience and I can help you. But for the other person, it could mean the world for them. It could start their career, it could change their life, etc. And to be in a position where you can actually give people that sort of gifts 
with a high potential uh, positive outcome is fascinating. I love that. I would say that to me, the greatest thing about helping people is actually when you see that great upside, like you mentioned, in many ways, it's a reflection for you to think, my God, this is possible. If someday I might need something, maybe it's for someone else easy, there will be that person who doesn't like want something. They just want to see that the world can be made much better. And just with the small thing, it can mean everything. And therefore, to me, at least, that was like for me personally, but it seems to you, uh, it seems to me that it's more about, like you said, when you are in the position to be able to do that, that your whole life is about building more and more and more ability so that you're more and more in that position so that even a huge impact on the world can be so little to you because you have grown and developed and collected so much ability, assets, and leverage. Is this a true understanding? Absolutely. It's really about transcending Maslow needs. Uh, it's... Um, um, Self more and more selfless for sure, and and uh, it's more about the um, the the well may, maybe it's a bit selfish because it's it's a bit about the satisfaction of being able to help to be able to be useful, but it's also uh, I also I'm not sure if karma dharma is the right word here, uh, but um, I also believe uh, a bit in in what goes around comes around, and uh, uh, I like to view the world as a book. Um, you can uh, and life that you have been given as a book, <clears throat> and and you can choose to study, and and some people do, and some people are a bit more uh, floating around. For me, it's study hard, stay stay curious, and learn as much as possible. There might be a lesson at the end or, or a purpose for why we are here. And, and I want to get as much as I can out of it. And, and I think for me, at least, um, the, best, uh, the best reward is when, when, you, when your life has purpose and when you are meaning and when your life has meaning. And, 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 and to help others is the most meaningful thing. I love this. And I'm thinking now about a metaphor of the submarine again, where you said you need to notice every small detail. And also the submarine has a destination, which goes now to the metaphor of purpose, that you pay attention to this huge submarine you found yourself in, so that you understand where is the destination and therefore that reduces stress because if you're on a submarine just drifting like you talked about those people you don't know where you're going the ocean is vast we don't see that far ahead but if you have that guiding star of a purpose and meaning that you feel okay i don't see the destination but i know where i am which gives a lot of of balance like you spoke about and reduces that unnecessary stress and i love to that you use two metaphors that are related to the arts. Your life is a book and you study hard and you're a director and you're conducting or directing a movie for other people, which is really fascinating. Can you comment on this whole thing, whatever was relevant in this, what I said now? 
<laughs> I think all. <laughs> um, and and of course that the, there is uh, there is the need to uh, to have a sustainable business. There's a need to have you know at least until the world changes dramatically, we will have money. And money uh, is an enabler or disabler uh, for good or evil. Uh, and and um, but for me, I, I've been working with equity-based incentives, accounting, evaluation, and disclosure. This was my first found in the, the company we four of us founded in 2002 and built up as a software as a service business for equity incentives and to structure incentives and. Um, Motivation and incentives are really the key forces at play in society today. Why do you go to the office? Why do you do this show? Why do you make this podcast? Why do I participate in the podcast? Why do people listen to the podcast? And 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 um, some of it is about money, uh, but money is more of an instrument, and people need to understand that. Uh, of course, if if you're if you only need to think about food, warmth, shelter, then unfortunately you're not in a position where where you can uh, spend your uh, life and energy thinking about um, the things that I'm so lucky to be able to put my skills to. Uh, but when, when, when you can have more of a purpose and you can actually try to see, look around you, see how the world is uh, slowly but surely coming apart today and where more and more people have to wake up and, and everyone has to wake up and see that and try to pull it together again. We are becoming so many people on this planet and we all need to transcend the Maslow's hierarchy of needs and, and look at Mother Earth and we need to look at um, the, our brothers and sisters and everyone around ourselves and we have to actually uh, be uh, more, uh, be selfless and, uh, and I think uh, the younger people today are getting it, and the older people uh, are <laughs> a bit slower in the learning, perhaps. Uh, so for me, uh, being attentive to your surroundings and, and never stop being curious and, and never become lazy. So I think if I can be allowed to prod a bit, I, I would say that COVID-19 has been terrible in many ways but it is a blessing in disguise it is a wake-up call it's a wake-up call for everyone to uh, think about the core values and think about what's important to you but also think about uh, what's around us not just your city and your country but the whole world and what where are we driving this planet the only one that we have so I think uh, for awareness, it has been a very, a very welcome gift because people are starting to think again. I love that. You said we're driving this planet, which is exactly the metaphor of the uh, submarine, where in a way, I believe you view the whole planet as that, and therefore we need to be aware. And the words that describe you the most is selfless, but as in a way of having your needs so fulfilled that you can transcend even self-actualization into self-transcendence in the Maslow's hierarchy of needs and that people can only do that when first they have their needs met but we are too many people on the planet so that becomes more difficult but when people get there 
and they clarify and understand their values, they can live with purpose in this earth. And rather than crash it like your friend crashed the submarine, unfortunately, they can actually learn from the mistakes of other people and use their values and self-transcend and be selfless and notice all the what is happening, the environment surrounding them, so that they correct what is the wrong direction uh, that the earth is going into, and therefore the world will be a better place, and that COVID-19 is a huge catalyst for this, and if people might you know, complain about it, but it was a blessing in disguise, whether people had more time for self-reflection or a lot of the things that were going with momentum nonstop now have been halted. And therefore, humans have the opportunity to choose to restart in a new and different way. Did I understand correctly? Any concluding <laughs> words as well as if people wish to uh, speak with you, communicate with you, learn about your businesses, which websites or links or social media do you recommend? Uh, I'm easily found on LinkedIn. I think uh, for business parts, that's the easiest uh, portal for me to engage with the, with the surroundings. In the different businesses, uh, I, in Northern Light Sensors or be it Dry Lab or be it friend software friendos.com or be it uh, nornir one traffic and uh, upstock to name a few uh, it's more natural to do it for the purpose of that particular business but if you want to reach me directly uh, linkedin is the best and uh, uh, yeah i'm also well facebook i try to use more only for <laughs> coordinating family and private life but uh I will try to. Um, I, I'm curious. I love to meet new people, and I'm quite open. And I a low threshold contact is okay for me as long as I have the capacity. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure and honor, a truly enriching experience. And I wish you an absolutely fantastic outdoors time with your family in the weekend, which I'm sure, although it's cold, you'll find a way to be out with your three children and those you love. Abdulaziz, thank you so much. Uh, it's uh, impressive to hear how quickly you absorb uh, and put into context what I have um, tried to say. And uh, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, I will follow you and, and your podcast with increased interest for sure now that I have a better understanding of your powers. So thank you so much for your time and curiosity. And um, I hope we will speak again soon. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm.